And welcome to part two. <laughs> picking, <laughs> up, picking up where we left off, um, for those of you jumping into part two here, we've had some technical difficulties and apologize, but welcome to part two, where we were discussing Stranger Things and the way that they were able to capture the mall culture of that time period. Jim, did you go and hang out with your friends at the mall or were you not allowed? Oh, dear God. Mickey, I lived in New Jersey. This was the only thing to do. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, so mall you know, rats was actually life, written about your mall, probably. Yeah, no, a couple of t- wrong turns in life. I would have ended up a character in a Kevin Smith movie. Um, you know, the line about mall rats, <laughs> they don't they don't work there. They don't shop there. They just hang out there. That there was a decent amount of that uh, when I was growing up. So there's one thing though that's, that's bugging me about this season, Mickey, and I want to want to bounce it off of you. So it's season three. Mm-hmm. It's a supernatural thriller set in a small town. We've seen a lot of things happen in season one and season two. Mm-hmm. First thought, if you were a resident of Hawkins, Indiana, <laughs> how many consecutive years of massacres and terrible bloody monsters would it take before you moved? <laughs> Fair. Um, but I think that one of the, the situations is I had a problem with the way that the reporters acted like there was no possible way that there could be something odd going on. And this isn't really much of a spoiler, but one of the characters, actually several of the characters work for a newspaper. And when they start talking about their ideas, the way that people respond, I'm like, did the government just like shut those stories down? Right. I mean, are we to assume that like no one understands that like people go missing in this town? Yeah. What happened about Barb's parents? Like, I assume they know she's not here. I um I, I wrote a bit about this today, and it, the more I thought oh, really? about it, yeah, the more it, the more it started bugging me. Because first of all, in the opening of season one, they say, "Oh, we haven't had a missing persons case since the 1920s, and we haven't had a suicide since the 19, since 1961." This is supposed to be a very quiet small town. Over the course of season one, quite you know, first of all, several, quite a few people die. Quite a few right? lab technicians at the uh, Hawkins Natural Re- uh, Energy Research Laboratory are dying once a week, it looks like, you know. Yes. Uh, the, the higher death toll than Cabot Cove, Maine, during Murder, <laughs> She Wrote, right? You know. Yes. Uh, soldiers get killed. You know, uh, Barb, as you mentioned, uh, dies and disappears. And the thing that gets me, a big chunk of the, the first season, you know, it's spoilers, but it's been a few years. You got time. Um, Will Byers died. Half the town went to his funeral. Uh-huh. And then he comes back. Oops, never. And I, I remember that the explanation was like, you know, uh, um, wasn't it something like mortician or, or uh, forensic examiner? The guy whose job was to do the, uh, uh, the autopsy. And they said it was a botched autopsy. And I'm like, how bad do you have to botch an autopsy to bring a kid back to life? Yeah, well, and again, it was it was also very strange. Like the whole Will Byers storyline was very significant mm-hmm. in the first season. The second season, maybe even more so to a certain degree because of, you know, what mm-hmm. he brought back with him. But what I found annoying about this season was when he would Harry Potter like reach for his neck. Yes. <laughs> and I was like, I, 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 it took me out of the moment several times simply because I immediately thought of Harry Potter feeling when Voldemort was nearby. Yes. <laughs> it was weird. And it also kind of felt like that was Will's only job. Yeah. Like he, he didn't he's... really have, like his character didn't really have much to do other than every, every once in a while reach up, touch his neck and be like, 
he's nearby. Well, as far as I'm in, you know, one thing I think it's doing a really good job is capturing that awkward stage. The kids are what, 13 around now, 14? Mm-hmm. Right? So they're not really kids anymore, but they're just stepping into their teen years. Uh, budding romances, first dating and kissing and, and all that kind of stuff. And it's that he, he's the kid who isn't as mature as the others in that sense. He's the kid who's still holds on to that childhood and still wants to play Dungeons and Dragons. And, you know, that, that you know, in most groups of kids, you're going to have one kid who's kind of like that. And he kind of had to be, represent the one who didn't want to. And this creates a lot of, I think, very natural well-acted and well-written tension amongst the kids. So, I mean, all uh, that's fine. These kids are amazing actors. Yeah. All um, of them. But you're, to your point about the newspaper, you, you know, <laughs> there's been so much weird stuff that happens in this town. And when Nancy just says, hey, you know, you know like my, my first observation was, and you know, minor spoiler for early in the first, ep- first episode, the moment there's a power outage in town, Mickey, mm-hmm. everyone in town should be saying, well, this is probably an incursion by the demonic forces of the Upside Down. Everyone or the Russians. Weapons, spread out, find 11, otherwise yes. we'll die. <laughs> yes, right. <laughs> like, I mean, and again, the idea that when she's like, you know, we have this situation with these crazy rats and there might be something to this. And they're like, oh, why would you think that? And I'm like, I don't know, because like two years ago, there was some kind of crazy monster thing living in the shed. And making people disappear to the upside down. Right. And then in last season, like half the town got blown up when Eleven had to come in and save everybody. Right. Hawkins, Indiana is the site of the biggest military loss for the U.S. military since Vietnam. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, oh. I, I am just. Oh, oh like what said, do you know? Your, your brother's friends with the resurrected kid. You know. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Your brother's resurrected. What do you know? Uh, we should, probably should also point out that one of these skeptical reporters is played by Jake Busey, and I think it's an absolute masterpiece to cast Jake Busey to play the kind of role his father, Gary Busey, would have played back in the 1980s. And he has been in a million things, but mm-hmm. it's crazy how much he looks like his dad. Um, it's crazy how immediately you know, like, you recognize him in any yes. role. Like, he's and, very hard to disappear into a role. Yeah, But also, like, this character's a jerk. Like and you, it's perfect you're, for him. You're really. supposed to hate this character from the beginning. The mm-hmm. casting I'm I'm finding weird. And I'm curious about you. Uh, what do you think of uh, Carrie? Is it Elwes? It, you know, Robin Hood and or um, uh, Princess Carrie Oles. Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, I uh, fine. He pops up in things. He's fine. I don't have a problem with most of the casting. Um, I I feel like. I feel like, again, there was a lot of weirdness that happened. They have so many subplots sometimes going on that it takes them a while to wrap up all the subplots so that they can then focus on the main plot. Um, it was It's interesting because it definitely makes you think of, you know, that awkward time, as you mentioned. I think that everyone will both laugh, cry, and probably, like, have that awful pit in their stomach thinking about some of the things that the kids are going through at this point in their lives. Um, but they are fabulously acted. It's still a great thing to watch, but I was epically disappointed with how this season ended. And that is all I will say on that subject. Okay. Um, I was going to say seeing Carrie Elba's, uh, so he's play, playing the mayor and we're supposed to not like this guy. I, I think th- you're, I think it's pronounced like Yules. Yules. All right. So Carrie Yules, pardon, pardon me, Mr. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, Mr. I Yules. think. Terrific actor. 
beloved, you know, all from the stuff. Prince's but Bride. He's so like it, it's very odd to see such a likable actor playing a character you're supposed to not like. And, and oh, I feel almost played, he's almost heavy handed many things. Um, I think one of the best roles he actually played was in Psych. Um, I don't know if you watch Psych very much, the television show, but he played an international art thief where he was oh, the bad guy, and right. he was hilarious. Okay. I actually think he does a pretty good job, and he's been the bad guy in other things. Okay. Um, but yeah, no, I think that yeah, that no, I, maybe that's why I'm a... more comfortable with it. He's kind of got that. When he when he plays the bad guy, there's that underlying snideness that I think really works for him. Okay. Um, and the other thing is also that you know I, I realize Hopper is the, the the hero of the series and the guy we're supposed to like and relate to. That for I guess like, at first I was like, huh, the, the the kids are getting older. Is the show going to work with them as teenagers? And mm-hmm. I, the more I think about it, the more I think it actually works better because it's kind of frustrating to have. Um, you know, prepubescent characters in a dangerous situation because you're like, you know, they're not going to grab a gun and, you know, charge in and save the day, right? That's just not something that, you know, kids are going to do. Only Uh, Nancy. What? Only Nancy. Yeah. By the time somebody's a teenager, it's a little bit more plausible and, you know, Steve has risen to the occasion more than once and and Mm -hmm. all that. Um, But Hopper, like, it's almost like he's. I, I noticed that there's an early scene in which he's watching Magnum PI, and he really does seem to have, you know, imbo- drunk deep from the glass of a big heaping glass of Maverick cop juice. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, yeah. yeah. But I think that's part of it is that, you know, he's going through some things in his life. And you'll, I don't know if you've gotten to the point yet, but at some point he actually shows up in a Hawaiian shirt. Oh yeah! Oh no! It's it's definitely he's you know and and so you definitely get the vibe he's been watching a lot of Magnum, um, and I think it bothers him obviously that Eleven is growing up. He doesn't know how that works. He doesn't have. I mean, legitimately, he did find her in the woods and he lured her out with Legos. Mm-hmm. Oh no! I'm sorry. It's a... You know the Lego waffles. Um, but so anyway, ego waffles, I guess. <laughs> uh, but anyway, it's it's. I think that he's struggling with all of that. There's actually been some backlash, believe it or not. Um, Evan Rachel Wood, who's a bit of a strange child anyway, went on, I guess, Twitter or I'm going to guess Twitter and said that she thought that Hopper was abusive in this season and that no one should date anyone who acted like him. And she took a lot of shit for it. And I guess it's because he does a lot of yelling and drinking. There's a lot of drunk driving. Um, I think it's hilarious that Netflix is all like, okay, well, we're going to make sure that people don't smoke like they did in the 80s. But yes, they are. You know. they literally had the chief of police drunk and driving all over the town. Yeah. I, you know, I, I would say that. I mean, a, it, you know, it's a show. People let it go. Um, But what I will say is I think Hopper was dealing with some stuff and I think he tries really hard to work through that. But again, I think part of it is they've kind of built him up to be that stereotypical kind of, you know, almost like the cop that Nick Nolte would play. Yeah, a good way of putting it. Um, So when putting together uh, Between Two Scorpions available from Amazon, plug, 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 and one, so this the concept called the moral event horizon, right? When you, when you're mm-hmm. writing a character who's supposed to be heroic, the audience or the reader is supposed to really, you know, 
rooting for them, identify with them, and they do something that's uh, morally unacceptable to the reader. You know, and somebody when you're when you're creating an anti-hero character, you kind of can you know end up going too far in this. And one of the drafts of Between Two Scorpions, I had uh, Ward Rutledge, the guy who's totally not inspired by Cam, uh, <laughs> capture a guy. He concludes, you know, we established that he's guilty. He's a bad guy. There's no two ways about it. Murdered somebody. Um, but he basically ties him to, a, you know, ties him up and then in the first draft sets him on fire and burns him to death. Uh, <laughs> and I had, you know, made very clear that, you know. Maybe a little too dark. <clears throat> well, I, I made it, you know, this was a very bad guy. And oh, by the way, he reminds the Ward character of Timothy McVeigh. The Oklahoma City bombing was an important, you know, moment in his character. Yes. And that this is the sort of thing you would do. And I, I showed it to one of my friends and she said, if you hadn't written the book, I would stop reading at that point. <laughs> that, mm. that Ward had come across as not a heroic character, not somebody who was dark and driven, but, you know, but just a sociopath who was, you know, straight up murdering people. Mm-hmm. Uh, right up. And so... You know, there's a danger. You know, there's a danger there. Hopper may have really come close to. I, I was wondering was was it because of his relationship with L, or was it because of his relationship with uh, Winona Ryder? I think a little bit of both was mixed yeah. in because she specifically talked about dating someone. But I, I let me ask you because of course I actually grew up in a household where there was a lot of yelling, mm-hmm. and more to the point, I I don't know that I have a proper understanding of, mm. of what the eighties household was supposed to look like. Um, because obviously it's, it's significantly different now. I think everybody knows that. Um, but at the same time, I felt like he was just acting like a super overprotective dad. Yeah. You know, I, and so I don't think I took it as being like, he was being quote abusive. Yeah. I think I, he was I, acting more under like, I don't know what the hell else to do. Um, I, I think that's, you know, the, the, and the irony of course, you know, we, he's a guy who's already lost, uh, one daughter to a disease, mm-hmm. uh, ruined his marriage, uh, a guy, you know, who, who had been, you know, been through something horrible and maybe had not come through completely fine the other end and, and was still carrying all of that baggage and, 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 you know, dealing with all of that, um, I guess maybe the more interesting thing is they're clearly are setting up and for spent you know two seasons setting up the idea that there's a very special bond between uh is Joyce the the Winona Ryder character? No, it's uh Karen. Well, no, Joyce. 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 Okay, all right. It is Joyce. So, you know, you know, look, we all see her and we just see Winona Ryder. Um and there's a little bit of, you know, play fighting, and I'm maybe the idea, you know, if we're supposed to find the way Hopper and Winona Ryder fight charming, then I think they missed the point because he really does. There's a lot of yelling. There's a lot of him being, you know, um, not entirely sober and irritated and losing his temper and, you know, uh, explosive temper may be a good way of putting it. I think that I think that they attempt to create sexual tension between the two of them Mm. in a way that doesn't work. Like, there's already sexual tension there. Like, the actors themselves are able to bring that. But with the yelling and stuff, maybe that puts people off. I don't know. I'm a yeller, so I don't really care. Um, didn't phase me literally in the slightest. But I, I does make me wonder, like, if people who are not yellers were like, what? Yeah. So, I mean, listeners, I let you be the judge. You tell Gemini which is right. I don't know. 
Yeah, but I, like, I was gonna say like they they make very clear she's still recovering from the loss of a a previous beloved partner. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, so the idea that she may not be ready for another relationship, and he does come. I think he comes he comes across as kind of cloddish for not picking up on that, even though they're good friends, even though, you know, there's a great affection between the two of them. Well, but I mean, like, she basically shows up and says something insane, like, my magnets aren't working, and he's ready to, like, go follow her all around the world for it. So, Mickey, you know. Mickey, we just established, the moment your magnets stop working in in in, uh, in in this town, assume that it's a monster nearby. Right! Like, <laughs> He really is the only character that reacts appropriately to her throughout. The other thing I want to observe, like Hawkins, Indiana, even the maintenance room for the public pools is a scary, creepy place. Oh, my God. This place is I terrifying. Mean, mundane locations, like the back hallways of malls, right? I mean, any single circumstance. But you know what? That's what makes it so scary is because we've all been in those situations where we've either had to go in and out of one of those, you know, pool rooms or have you ever been in the back alley or back hallways of a mall? Um, Very creepy. I remember when I first moved down here to Richmond, there was a, I shouldn't be laughing, but whatever. There was a mall here in town where someone had been murdered at the mall and they were murdered in the hallways behind like as they were kind of closing up shop and that freaked me out for years like just knowing that that had taken place back there because there's like this whole other world back there yeah it is a you know you could imagine and i know it's filmed in a small town in georgia not far from indiana um the hawkins lab building if you're wondering i think is part of emory university by the way how'd you like to be at emory university working in that building Oh, wow. And all of a sudden, I, everybody, yeah. <laughs> everybody thinks it's got this, you know, terrible, uh, terrible research project that could destroy the world going on inside. So, I think, you know, again, I think that they've done a great job with the show. I'll be curious to see, um, have they announced if there's a season four yet? They are. And my understanding is they think it'll be the last one. And I think that probably is a wise decision um, just because you can't have. At some point, people would have to, you know, the, the, what, the point I was trying to make in today's newsletter was um, you, the characters should only be surprised by the otherworldly or supernatural ones. Um, and then after that, they should be like, oh, okay, well, this happened to me last year. I, you know, it, it very well could be monsters as opposed to, ah, oh, Nancy Drew, stop being so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? And so I, I don't know if this is a form, this, 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 it's a, it was, you know, like I said, first season is golden. It's a, it's a great atmosphere, great mm-hmm. mood, great attention to detail. I just don't think you could just tell season after season of stories here. Um, because after a while you, you know, Hawkins would not be able to feel like a normal town, but, uh, anyway, so that's our, that's our take. Hope everyone checks it out. Um, Mickey, Stranger, what else are you watching these days? Well, Stranger Things is fantastic, as you know, um, and, I, and I do love it. And I spend a lot of my time actually watching things that are on Netflix. And this is interesting because right now I'm in that period of time where I'm deciding whether I want to cut the cable or not. Mm-hmm. Um, and what can I do? Like, the only thing that ties me in, of course, are my sports packages. Like, if I could figure out all of that I need to for my live sports, I could probably make that work. But because of this, I'm addicted to Netflix, and I find myself watching a lot of, new, of their material. The one thing that irritates me about them is I don't feel like they put out enough movies that are new and current and things I actually want to watch because they're apparently spending all of their money 
in developing their own movies and these series. Some mm. of them are great and some of them are trash. So I kind of wish they would, you know, be a little more choosy, I guess, in, if it's going to cut back on me getting the new movies from them. Um, but yeah, I do. I spend a lot of time on there. And one of the things that's on there right now, um, I just want to hit on this real quick, is they have several, if not all, of Ken Burns documentaries, mm. including The Civil War, which I watched, and it was fabulous. Um, it came out in 1990, and it really changed the way that documentaries were done. Um, in general, but it is a fantastic thing for really any American to watch. It's um, just absolutely stunning. And so we watched that uh, over a period of weeks, because I think it's like nine hours long or something like that. And it's really in-depth. You really do feel, I felt like I learned things throughout, uh, which was fantastic. And now I've moved on to the Prohibition one. And I watched it, and it's only three episodes long. Totally worth it. Everyone needs to watch this. It is absolutely fantastic to see and get a really good understanding of how Prohibition came about and who was behind it and what we lost because of it. Um, and it was really kind of amazing how it was told. And, you know, Ken's Bur Ken Burns' documentaries, everyone will say, you know, he's obviously leans a little liberal. Some people complain about things that he points out. I think that he does a really good job um, of telling the stories that need to be told and doing so in a way that are in my opinion, like, I, I feel like I learned something every time. Mm. Um, so uh, listeners may remember me talking about uh, uh, chaperoning a class trip to Gettysburg uh, towards the end of the school year. And before we went, I, I had to try to have my son, my older son, watch, actually both sons watched uh, one of the episodes, the episode about Gettysburg. Um, and it's interesting because I remember it being, you know, being utterly captivated when I watched, I think this was in our high school years, it first came out. Um, it was still good. Um, the pace was slower than I remembered, Mickey, and I guess that's kind of, I don't know if that's an indication of my attention span or whether, uh, uh, you know, a particular what that was still really well done. And I kind of wish, um, I, 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 I've taken a look at the Vietnam one. I've taken a look at the, uh, some of the other one. I remember, uh, jazz was going to be a big, uh, was, he did a big one on that. None of them have quite grabbed me the way the civil war one was. I don't know whether it's mm -hmm. a subject matter or whether it's, um, it was just so while, exceptionally well done. Yeah. Uh, Ken Burns started becoming almost a parody of himself or kind of, you know, mm -hmm. you became familiar with, you know, the, the narrator, the pictures, the slow pans, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, absolutely. He invented it and that's what they pretty much do with them now. But again, I haven't watched them all. All I will say is that Prohibition has been enlightening mm. to me, to say the least. Um, the other thing I would tell you is that I am, look, here's the thing, you know, how much I love true crime. Mm -hmm. I, I have a very dark and mysterious soul, obviously. And you know I'm obsessed with what my friends like to call the death channel, ID <laughs> Discovery, my absolute favorite channel in the world. And all it does is show true crime all day long, every day. It's fantastic. But I truly believe that true crime is having a moment right now. Um, that, you know, there's more channels available that are coming out with like all crime all the time, um, kind of things, you know, there's the crime con we talked about and there's a lot of these things coming through Netflix, which are true crimes that are broken down. Obviously we had, you know, making a murderer, making a murderer too. um, the keepers, which is a fantastic story about a murder of a nun, um, in Baltimore, and I, I definitely think in light of what we've learned about that diocese 
that it's certainly mm-hmm. worth watching again. And it's called The Keepers. Um, but there are, you know, again, they've got they've got true conf- or they've got the uh, Ted Bundy tapes on there right now. So they've got, you know, a pretty vast collection of true crime, but it really does seem to be having a moment. And, um, you know, some people don't like the idea of there being true crime entertainment. Um, Some people think that it's exploitive, but I am not one of those people, obviously. Um, But I'd like to at least, you know, voice that they exist. Um, But it does seem to me that it's kind of having a moment in, in culture. And I think that it's fascinating to me because I think probably it started with like the CSI thing for a lot of people. I mean, like I've been into true crime forever, but I think when they started seeing how these crimes were actually solved and they got more interested and, you know, and now you've got people that are doing a lot of online sleuthing Mm. that ultimately end up helping to solve real crimes that have been cold. And really that's, I think that anyone that's really interested in true crime, it's about solving those cold cases. Um, trying to figure out what no one else could figure out, solving the puzzle, you know, putting together the clues. Um, and I think that, you know, there also is a vested interest in justice um, yeah, was, for anyone that's involved in this. And so, go, go ahead. I was going to say that, you know, look, for a long time, uh, you know, when you when there is a, you know, particularly difficult crime and it started turning into a cold case, the the answer was, well... Police have limited resources. There are always new crimes being reported each day. At some point, they have to move on. And so all of these people who are either amateur sleuths or just really into this, you know, like the the wisdom of the crowds, look, it's a resource. You know, maybe it, you know, maybe it isn't always useful. Maybe you end up with a whole bunch of cockamamie theories or or stuff like that. But um, you're right, the podcast format really has reinvigorated this. And I, I kind of feel like, you know, look, of all the forms of of you know uh, things people could do with their time. Uh, a pursue for justice, first of all, it makes us feel, you know, the, the people who are investigating and digging mm-hmm. feel like they're doing something good, right? You know, maybe it works out, maybe they don't. None of us are ever going to probably necessarily, you know, crack some case and catch some killer. But, you know, that is a, uh, you know, there's a... There's something to it. And one of the podcasts that I've listened to, that, and again, we're moving from Netflix right into podcasts here. But mm-hmm. in reality, like I said, it's having a moment. So it's kind of everywhere. It's on, you know, there's additional cable channels. It's certainly showing up on Netflix. And most definitely, if you go into podcasts and just hit browse and put in true crime, I mean, like a million come up. And it all depends into what you like. Now, for me, I happen to be a fan of the ones that tell a story of one crime either over one podcast, like one show, or over the entire season. Um, I don't generally like people just discussing their own opinions on things. <laughs> Isn't that hilarious? And so, um, so there's a couple that I've listened to that I really, really like and I want to recommend to our listeners. And there's a couple that are more questionable. But one of the ones that's kind of in the middle for me is called Someone Knows Something. And the reason that I bring it up is because I think it's ultimately what is behind this quest for true crime. And the interest that people have is that this it, it ends up ultimately being a crime that was committed in Canada where this guy grew up. Um, a child went missing um, and just vanished. There was never a trace of this six-year-old child. He disappeared at the lake while he was fishing with his father and brother and was never seen again. And ultimately, um, it becomes that question, though, what if no one knows anything? Like, the, the idea being that, you know, we put these ideas out in the world in the hopes that it might trigger someone's memory. 
it might, you know, make someone think of something to come forward. But there are some cases where no one knows anything. And mm-hmm. those are the hardest ones to kind of accept. Yeah. Um, yeah. A couple weeks ago, I started actually, there, somebody was trying to do an online uh, database of every missing person's case in the country. Mm-hmm. And it is unnerving and, and stunning to see just how often it happens. Um, mm-hmm. All kinds of different ages, all kinds of different, you know, some, some circumstances where you get a little bit of a hint of, you know, this person is in a bad marriage and, you know, may have tried to run away from their spouse and, and you know, start out, start again under some new identity somewhere else. Um, some more likely you know, the spouse killed them. Yeah. You know, definitely, you know, there are circumstances where, you know, this person was involved in criminal activities. And so, you know, someone, you know, you know, the loan shark could have done them in or something like that. But um, really, you know, in some of these cases, it's, you know, they're, you know, coming home from work one day and they never make it home and nobody has any good answers as to what happened. It's, uh, you know, uh, the, the, the scale and the frequency of it is pretty uh, uh, unnerving. Oh, absolutely. And so I want to tell some people some great ones. If you're into listening to full seasons to get the full season of the crime and the storytelling behind it, one of the craziest ones I've listened to is the Black Dahlia story. And it's the podcast done by the Hedells, um, the family of George Hodel, who is one of the suspects um, in the Black Dahlia case. And it is a mm-hmm. twisted family with a twisted story. Um, and they did the podcast to go along with the TNT program, I Am the Night, which was based on Fauna Hodel's Yes. Book. Yes. Okay, and so there is a podcast out there from her daughters, and it's it's pretty interesting the information that they are able to dig up on both their families and their mother, and certainly their grandmother and great grandfather. So that one's a good one um, if you're into like the Black Dahlia. And then um, my new favorite is actually called Southern Fried True Crime, <laughs> and um, it is a girl with a a fairly nice southern accent. It's not so deep you can't understand her. Um, and she does a story each week. So they're an hour-long podcast based usually, um, and she does a great deal of research on reading books on the stories and telling the stories through within, you know, the hour. There are a couple that run a little longer just because of all the information. Um, but it's a great one to listen to. And I spend a lot of time, as you know, traveling, so these are great for me. Um, another one that I listened to that was fascinating is called The Shrink Next Door. Um, and if it, it's one of those ones that you will listen to and wonder how things happen in life. Um, so certainly worth a check out. There's another one called Disgraceland. And Disgraceland is, is great for people who like short little podcasts. Great if you're running um, or you're working out or, you know, just jumping in the car. Disgraceland, they're usually about a half hour to 45 minutes long, and they are the stories about how we allow rock stars to get away with murder. Mm. Oh, I did hear about this. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's fascinating. I mean, it really is fascinating, the stories that he goes through. And obviously, you know, he hits on the majors, you know, Sid and Nancy, and uh, obviously Courtney Love and Kurt Cobain and... And there's, but there are stories in there that I didn't know about. 
and I found fascinating. So I would definitely check that one out as well. Um, I definitely think it's worth uh, something to listen to because, I mean, I'm, I, I listen to my radio all the time, but when I'm traveling, sometimes I feel like if I put one of these podcasts on, just like you guys listening to us right now, you know, it makes the time go faster. You know, you feel invested in it. And there are so many unsolved crimes out there um, that, you know, there's great stories to be told, obviously, but you maybe actually do know something. Maybe mm-hmm. someone does know something. Job um, the memory of someone. Uh, right? You know, so it very much could happen. Um, it's very real, but I think that it's fascinating to most people because, you know, a lot of people that are quote unquote into true crime just newly or kind of vaguely like yourself, you know about Ted Bundy, you know about John Wayne Gacy, you know about the major serial killers and major crimes that were covered by the media. Um, But when you start really getting into watching these shows all the time, you find out that every little town is kind of like Hawkins, Indiana. Mm. If, If not every one of them, then almost every town has something in their history that is either a you know, it could be a dark moment, could be uh, something odd that was never quite explained or, or something like that. Um, you know, sad to say we are, you know, uh, very, very few communities are, you know, no community is immune to that sort of thing. What I wanted to ask you, though, Mickey, and I, I put this to you, I gave you a little heads up that I might ask this. What is the true crime story that you feel is most overlooked, neglected, uh, that people ought to know about um, that you think is kind of a... Uh, they, you know, they, they, if somebody said, "Hey, what's you know, we we do know," they said the Black Dahlia, some of these, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, the the disappearing white girls in the Bermuda, in Bermuda, things like that. Right. There are certainly yes, there are a lot of you know high profile cases that get a lot of attention, and this one actually got some attention initially. But I want to talk about it because it might be one of the strangest and most interesting, and it is the the murder of her name was Terry but she went by Missy Beavers, B-E-V-E-R-S. And the thing about it is, is she was an instructor. And I'm just going to actually go ahead and read it here from sure. the, the People article so that you guys kind of get an idea of what this is about. Detectives have been investigating the 2016 killing of Technus. Texas fitness instructor Terry Missy Beavers for two years, but apparently aren't any closer to making an arrest, her family tells NBC News. Beavers' husband and three children spoke out in an interview on Saturday on the Today Show, two years after the 45-year-old was found unresponsive on the floor of a Midlothian church where she taught an early morning class. Soon after her death on April 18, 2016, investigators released footage of a suspected killer dressed in SWAT gear while walking through the church, police have asked local residents to take particular note of the person's unusual gait. Hmm. Authorities have investigated more than 1,600 tips since the slaying, but have not released a motive, and they also do not know if it's male or female. Now, why I find this interesting is that, one, she was killed in a church, Um, And two, there is absolutely 100% video of the person who murdered her. It's just that um, it's impossible to tell who this person is because they are dressed in SWAT gear. Mm, But they're right there on video. That's, you know, again, that's the sort of detail where you're like, you know, how does someone in SWAT gear 
a lot like, like when you see a SWAT team, you see a SWAT team. Mm-hmm. You know? Um then to do it around a church, then you know, like this, you know, I'd, you know, costume party, you're trying to sit through what how you know, how does that particular set of circumstances uh arise in it? It just it doesn't make it makes no sense. And it's the sort of thing where, you know, if you'd put it in a novel, it might have seemed too weird. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. And uh, what I'll do is go ahead and grab the video because that is available and I'll put it up on our Facebook page, even though I'm terrible about being on Facebook right now. Um, I'll put it up on our Facebook page and I will also put it up on Twitter because the video is there. You can watch the video um, of the alleged killer walking around in the hallway prior to going into murder Missy. Mm. Um, And there's something incredibly eerie about it. Yeah. The... um... The, the, so probably there was a castle episode that kind of dealt with this. There was a woman who was found in the uh, water tower of a hotel. Mm-hmm. And uh, she was a young Asian woman. And That's she based was, on a very real case. Yes. And so I, the, video, the, you know, the video of her interacting, seeming to, behaving very strangely in an elevator, mm-hmm. uh, seeming to hide from someone, sometimes peeking out. Um, sometimes seem to be talking to either to herself or to someone, mm-hmm. you know, recorded shortly before she died. You know, look, yeah, obviously this is the sort of stuff where you go and you, you know, spend an afternoon watching this stuff. You're going to freak yourself out. <laughs> you know, oh, no, absolutely. In fact, that is based on a true case. Um, and the hotel name is, it was, it was a really infamous one in LA. There's yeah. actually a couple of, of really, you know, there are several deaths there. there and it's, it's the famous hotel that, um, now I feel terrible for not having that name on the top of my tongue, but you can Google it while I tell you this. It's the hotel that um, American Horror Story set their hotel episode in, their hotel uh-huh. season in, um, because one of the true stories about that is, one, it's rumored to be one of the last places the Black Dahlia was seen was at their bar. Um, Richard Ramirez, the original, uh, the night stock. Cecil Hotel in downtown Los Angeles, February 19th, 2013. Sorry. The Cecil Hotel, yes. And Richard Ramirez, the night stalker, the one who Ah. had the pentagram, he actually lived there for a period of time. Uh, there was another serial killer from England who was obsessed and came and stayed in the room where Richard Ramirez stayed in the late eighties. And he also killed several prostitutes while he was here in town. Um, it also, for a long period of time, was a place where people would go and jump off of. So there were several suicides in it. So needless to say, there was a lot going on at the Cecil. Um, and this young girl, and this was just, uh, I think, I want to say like 2013, maybe. Um, I can't even remember, but I'm sure you've got the details there. But she gets on the elevator. She does this weird thing. And yes, her body is found later in... In floating in the water tank, which you have to have a code to get up to, her clothes are missing, but there's no sign of foul play. And that is another, you know, they, they've all, I think at this point they've almost ruled a suicide, but they, I don't, it's just so weird. When you yeah. watch it, you don't, like, it doesn't feel like a suicide, not saying that it's not. It's just a really weird, and again, you get that eerie feeling watching her in the elevator interacting. Yeah, this is there's something very wrong with her in that one. Um, I was gonna say if the Mickey, have I told you about the Max Headroom incident? No. Okay, so I'm trying to debate this. This seems like the sort of thing you and I would have talked about on this podcast at some point, uh-huh. listeners. If I have remembered and, and Mickey has amnesia, 
my apologies. If you haven't heard about this, you, you probably want to. Uh, it's not involving a murder, um, but I, you know it's, it's every bit this mysterious old crime is the late 80s, uh, as you probably can guess from the reference to Max Headroom. Uh, it is in Chicago. It is, I mentioned this in the book um, and, and used the same thing for how the terrorists uh, you know, hijacked the signals of, of broadcast television. So in Chicago, uh, some guy, there's a, the, if you have a, a television station, you traditionally are doing your local news or whatever report you're doing. You send out your signal to a high point to be the broadcast tower. Sometimes the networks would have their own towers, but in a big city like you know Chicago, you did it off the, the top of the Sears Tower, right? The highest uh, point you can get, it sends out nice, clear signal to everybody else. If you know what you're doing, which suggests a certain amount of familiarity with the broadcast television business, you can send something to go in between the site of the broadcast studio and the tower, send your signal to the tower on the same frequency but stronger, and the Sears Tower would then send out your signal. What happened twice in one night in Chicago uh, was some guy in a Max Headroom mask. And because of the sound distortion and all the other issues that come with us, it really sounds creepy and weird. And uh, uh, I wonder, actually, you know what? We're going to do something we'll almost never do. Um, Max Headroom incident. I'm going to see if I can get it on video and play it for you, Mickey, because it's so friggin' weird. Um, to do, to do, to do. But it is a completely unsolved uh, uh, situation in which nobody really knows who did it. It is still um, going on. It, it is, let's see, this is the... I, I'm, I'm bringing up the video now. I'm going to give you a minute to go ahead so, and do that. He interrupted a broadcast of Doctor Who, all right? Okay. Uh, which has his own fan base, and many folks had their... Okay. So I assume you got that. Oh, yeah. Okay. So, and it's a guy in a Max Headroom mask with some sort of metallic background behind him. Um, and it's generally gibberish or some sort of weird in-jokes or something, and people have been it speculating. But the, it is very creepy. It, it really does seem like some sort of like magical or monstrous thing just overtaking your television screen. Um, and it is, you know, the, the federal communication, this is, you know, a federal crime. You're, you're hijacking public airwaves. Um, it seemed to be some sort of prank or something like that, but nothing quite like it had ever occurred in, you know, broadcast television history. Um, and nobody ever figured out who did it. Nobody's entirely sure. Like, they've theorized how he did it. It isn't like they ever found the equipment or, or anything like that. Um, and theoretically, something like that could happen today. Now, a lot more people get their television through cable, streaming through the web, stuff like that. So you, it probably wouldn't be quite as simple. Or you'd have a much smaller audience these days. But, uh, but that is my you know, unsolved mystery. What the heck is going on? What was going on behind that? Um, because clearly somebody with some skill and knowledge decided to do something nobody else had ever done before, literally taking over the airwaves uh, on two, two separate channels twice in the same night. Um, and again, whatever, the, whatever, you know, whoever did it, they may very well have passed away because. Uh, well, and, and isn't thought. that, it, it's kind of like, you know, the D.B. Cooper thing. Yes, exactly. You know, like when something like that happens and no one's really, quote unquote, hurt or injured. Um, it even becomes an even more fascinating thing to, to be aware of because, again, you know, no one got really, no one was murdered, no one was killed, what mm -hmm. have you. 
Yeah, yeah. I think it's someone the, uh, did it for their very own reasons. Yeah, you know. So uh, you know, again, it, it, that element of mystery around it really kind of kind of sticks with me. Um, I think that's yeah, so fantastic. That and, and you know, you sp- you speak about people doing things and and making things um, more, you know interesting and better for the next generation so to speak and i think that i speak for everyone when i say that kim kardashian is doing that (laughs) so what is kim kardashian doing these days okay well she's going to law school and she yeah she really is she's going to law school um and she is also in addition to running all of her businesses including the newly released solution wear which is like spanks basically only with Kim stuff in it. Um, and so she's got all this going on. And in the process, she's also had helped, I think it's 27 people we're up to now, get out of prison um, that were in there for life sentences for nonviolent offenders, um, similar to what she did with Alice Marie Johnson. And what makes me think about Kim and what she's doing and how she's making such an impact is, one, obviously, um, I am right. And you were maybe <laughs> wrong about this, but Kim's a really influential person, and she's doing a lot with that influence, a lot of good. Well, what made me short... think about this even more so was, of course, you know, last week was the big Fourth of July Betsy Ross controversy, mm. and uh, you know, brought on by Colin Kaepernick as he brings on everything. Apparently, he's apparently like the. PC police now. I don't know. I don't know what his deal is or why people care what he thinks. But what I will tell you is this, that Kim Kardashian has done more for like actual changes and reform within our criminal justice system than Colin Kaepernick could ever hope to accomplish. I I was going to say, Mickey, when I uh, wrote about uh, Marianne Williamson, uh, the the spiritual guru running for president and the delight of the last Democratic debate. Um, I did, because she did have a party that was attended by Kim Kardashian back when she was running for Congress. And I did choose to refer to her as presidential criminal justice reform advisor, Kim Kardashian. See? Uh, attended the party. So There you go. Credit you, where that is due. I was uh, like, you can mock all you want, but it, she's actually getting some things done. And do you know why? Because she's willing to work with him, which is like a whole other story in and of itself. But the truth of the matter is you and, of course, our listeners, I'm sure at this point, are exceptionally thankful to me that they that you guys have such a deep understanding of Kim Kardashian West and her family. And, you know, I will I will take all of those. Thank you, Mickey's. We were wrong, Mickey's that you want to give me because I think she's doing awesome. And in fact, this week. She is on the cover of the Wall Street Journal, and her husband, Kanye West, is on the cover of Forbes. <laughs> so, first of all, let's all take a moment to listen to everyone apologizing to Mickey for misjudging Kim Kardashian. There we go, yes. Give it to me. There chirp, we go. Chirp, chirp, chirp. <laughs> the, uh... I, I feel like I probably should not hold my breath from you or the listeners. <laughs> Um, well, on that, I, I will say that Kim Kardashian is defying the, uh, the 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 image, the stereotypes, and she's attempting to use her fame for um, a, a case that I think most people would agree. I know there I know there was some controversy around the bill, but I think you can look at a lot of people and say, look, if it's not a violent offense, um, that most of these people, you know, you we 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 do believe in second chances. We don't, you know, if if you haven't killed someone, if you haven't 
done something brutal and horrible to someone, then, uh-huh. you know, maybe if you've, after you've you know, served a certain amount of time, you should get a second chance and we, you know, we'll behave well in prison and, and all that. Well, so, I'm a huge belief in criminal justice reform because I'm so into true crime. I recognize that the authorities are human too. Um, as are some of, you know, we think of the people that commit these crimes as everyone's a criminal because that's what the cops tell us that they are. And sometimes they're not. Um, so, you know, there's both, there's two sides to every story. And so I believe that the first step act is fantastic. And also I love the fact that I can then say that my girl did it. So, you know, (laughs) um, so you and I didn't have a chance to talk around the fourth when, um, Colin Kaepernick pretty much decreed that, uh, the Betsy Ross flag was now a symbol of white supremacy and should never be shown and all that stuff. Um, so I, I'll, I'll just make one observation and you can jump in here. So back during when Kevin Williamson was declared the most dangerous man in the whole wide world, uh-huh. um, Jeffrey Goldberg of the Atlantic, you know, had people on the Atlantic staff saying, no, we can't work with this guy. He'd, we'd feel threatened and menaced, you know? And I remember thinking like one of the whole points you want to be an editor of the magazine is that you get to decide who gets hired and who doesn't get hired and what runs and all that stuff. And mm-hmm. the moment you knuckle under to this crowd, you're not in charge anymore, right? Oh, they, yeah. They're telling they are. you who you can hire and who you can't hire. And, you know, Nike comes out with a Betsy Ross sneaker, and they think it's going to be a cool, popular sneaker, and everybody's going to like it. And all of a sudden, Colin Kaepernick comes along and tells Phil Nike and uh, the rest of the board of the director, no, you can't do that. And so it's like... <laughs> Like, we, we, what, first of all, what? tell, or is, is the issue then that really in the heart of it, um, they couldn't tell Colin Kaepernick, yeah, thanks, Colin, but we're, we're going to go our own way on this one. Uh, well, yeah. I guess my question is, how does this story get out? Because if Nike wasn't going to release the shoe, right, and it was primarily because of Kaepernick, like, who hmm. talked about it? It had to be Kaepernick's people to show his, you know, strength and power. Because why would Nike release that? If they weren't, you understand what I'm saying? Like, they have no reason to release that to the press because if they had chosen to not release the shoe, they're not going to waste any time with it. I I was going to say, do you you think maybe somebody frustrated within the ranks of Nike who thought, you know, whoever designed the Betsy Ross shoe might be kind of annoyed, you know? Could be. Again, I don't know. But that was one of the first questions that popped into my head was who even, you know, made this a story? Because that's something that ultimately we really probably should not have heard about um, in the public. And so somebody leaked it, as they tend to do. Um, I do want to talk about a real quick update on my girl, Hannah B., on The Bachelorette because we are getting towards the end. She's made some good decisions. She's made some poor decisions. But coming up, there is going to be a show. There's going to be a show coming up. I guess it's going to be next week or in the next coming weeks when she goes into the fantasy suite dates. And she and Luke P., the one who I've told you guys is a stalker, Mm -hmm. um, turns out his deal is he's born again but also really fake, like, all the time. He can't help himself. And so apparently he and she are having dinner, wine, what have you. Things are going relatively well. He proceeds to say that, you know, it's great that, you know, she has kept herself for their marriage bed. And, um, yes, their marital bed, I think is what he called it. And if he found out that she had, you know, had sexual relations with anyone at the, in the show, he would, of course, remove himself from the situation. 
at which point she clearly freaks out and kicks him off the show while telling him that she has had sex with at least one of the other bachelors. (laughs) 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 And I cannot wait to watch it. It's kind of like, remember I told you about the jumping the fence thing of the last season? This, suddenly, like, this is whole. I love Hannah. I think she is fantastic. And I cannot wait to see her finally tell him to hit the road. See, so one of the, I, I think, okay, now, Mickey, I feel like I saw something recently that found out that several bachelors um, have been on the show while they actually were still in relationships. Yes. And one of them that is in her top four is a guy named Jed. And he came on the show to promote his music career. He made that clear. Actually, at one point, he told her that. Like, after he kind of, realized that he liked her, I guess. I don't know. Um, he told her, like, I came on the show to promote my music career, but I'm finding that I'm, you know, actually enjoying myself with you and blah, blah, blah. Um, so, but then you find out, like, that he apparently had been dating a girl before he went on the show and she knew about it um, and was supportive because she thought it'd be good for his career. And then the craziest part by far was that she went to Jed's hometown date was this week. So she went to meet his parents and his family. And, like, the family's always a little rough. And, you know, they ask questions and you're dating other people and whatever and this and that and the other. And um, but they always ultimately at the end are kind of like, oh, whatever you guys decide to do, you're great. We love you. Yeah, that was not Jed's family at all. They literally told Hannah that being him being in love with her was not a good thing. Um, his mother told her that she understood how things worked because she was the bachelorette and he was just one of the guys on the show. So, I mean, my, you know... It was pretty well, wild. You, you, we've, we've talked at length that this is not really... It, it's not a reality show, right? Nope. It, it is a, mm. you know, everybody is in some... Uh, you know, like everybody's playing a, a character or an exaggerated version of themselves. So on the one hand, yes. it shouldn't be. But at this point, at what point does it become much more reach point? Like, well, it really is acting, right? <laughs> if you're, right. the only question is, these people who are involved, how does it feel to watch the person you're involved with be on The Bachelor or be on The Bachelorette every week? And, uh, you know. Well, and it is rumored that the person that she slept with is that Jed guy. So there's a lot tied to this guy. And I'm telling you, the hometowns, like, she really, really likes Jed. And it's very obvious. And I think he likes her. But again, who knows? Because could be faking. Um, But it seems more genuine than the others. And although he would not be my pick for her. But after meeting his family and them flat out telling her, like, nah, that's not really, you know, this isn't really cool at all (laughs) then you would think that you know she would step back and have second thoughts but instead she did something they've never allowed them to do which was to keep all four of them for her next round of fantasy dates Mm -hmm. so there you go and that is your bachelorette update for right now i'm glad you're here for that mickey i'm glad you're watching so that i don't have to (laughs) <laughs> Dude, I'm telling you, I, and of course, when Mr. Bias accidentally gets forced to watch it, he just hates my guts for it. But he then ends up, you know, commenting like, well, that one's the one she should pick because he's the only one that's a real man. The other ones are worthless. And this, he, he is a favorite and his name is Tyler C. And he is, he is Mr. Bias's favorite, which is funny to me that he even has a favorite now. 
You know, that's a um, small demographic. Mm -hmm. Guys on The Bachelor who have the highest appeal to... Uh, uh, Mr. Vice uh, is convinced that Tyler C. could, like, change a tire and he's a real dude. That would make a more interesting test, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, actually, have either the father or have some other, you know, male... Somebody who actually cares about the woman set up the test of what the... Uh, uh, yes. Other, you know, what the, what 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 test the guys should prove? What they, they should yes, they ought to be able to change tires. They ought to be able to change the oil. I want to know if they can fix things. Can they hammer? Can they nail? Like they have any skills that are valuable? And <laughs> I think that these are things that people should know. Um, and I feel like Tyler probably does have this skill. So we're going to find out soon enough. But I do love me some Hannah B. So I wanted to bring that up. Um, there's another new show on NBC that's called Bring the Funny. Okay. And uh, it just premiered this week. It's on at 10 p.m., I guess. Um, so that would be 10 p.m. on Tuesday nights. And it's Chrissy Teigen, Kenan Thompson, and Jeff Foxworthy. Are That's the, a weird combination. <laughs> right? Okay. So, and it's called Bring the Funny. And they have people competing. Like, there's 10, and then there's six, and they move them forward and what have you. But there's stand-up comics. There's sketch comics, and then there's what they're considering, like, the variety category. And uh, so far, I found it to be very entertaining. It's one of those nice little summer show pickups that they've done. And I thought it was, like, I, you know, like, there's been a lot of heavy stuff in the news lately. And sometimes the summer pickup shows are fun to watch, and they're entertaining. And soon I'll be watching Bachelor in Paradise for the same reason. They're mindless. And I enjoy them. But this Bring the Funny, I thought, did a really good job of just being pure entertainment. No, you know, nothing political, nothing offensive in any way. It was just funny. I was going to say, I think I'd love to, the first time a broadcast network says, look, here's the celebrities we can get our hands on. Right. <laughs> it's summer. They're not shooting a movie right now. Quick, do something funny. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, like I said, they're the judges and they are funny people in general. Um, but the, I think that the show itself has some potential. It's very, you know, at first I thought it was going to be like that last comic standing where it was like all stand up comics, but it's not. They have stand up comics, but they have partners and they have sketches. And again, they have what they call the variety, which is like people, the, the set they had last night, there were two guys that played music and jokes at the same time kind of thing. Mm. So if you're into that kind of thing, I would definitely check that out as well. I was going to say, America's Got Talent does a really good job of making me feel like America does not, in fact, have talent. What I found interesting in the most recent episodes of America's Got Talent, I don't watch it very much, but I was over at my neighbor's house and he had it on, was that most of the people weren't from America. That's a good point. You know, jobs Americans won't do. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> So I know that you wanted to talk about Spidey Man. Oh, now, yeah, we're, we're I coming think up on I uh, got you, but I, I think it's only fair to tell the listeners, this is my least favorite superhero. And the only reason that I've come back around to even considering Spider-Man was because Spider-Man Homecoming was so good. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I think the Tom Holland Marvel Studios affiliated version is much more interesting than the... Uh, the Andrew Garfield ones. Uh, I even think the the third one with uh, Toby Maguire was was pretty subpar. Um, what what you know? 
what people hate is when it gets redundant. And so by taking uh, Spider-Man, the first one, you know, it's the, the, the pre, uh, um, Homecoming almost never had him in traditional skyscraper Manhattan, New York City. Right. Um, kind of, you know, very deliberately kind of keeping out of the traditional, like we've already seen it. It skips over the Uncle Ben stuff. Well, now you put him in a European city, right? And the idea of this, somebody said this is a John Hughes-style teen high school movie. Um, both of them have been much better. Also, I think, I think you know, Tom Holland is playing the character very well. Um, it's a very relatable circumstance. And Zendaya is in it, isn't she? She is. And I was going to so the big twist at the end of Homecoming is, hey, this is MJ. This is going to be the significant love interest. This is the woman in the comic book they ended up marrying. Um, and so I was really on the, I was not actually, so what did you think of Zendaya's performance? I have not seen it. Oh, you have not. Okay. So what do you think of Zendaya's performance in the first one? Um, I like her, so I'm right. fine with her. I think, cause I, I was ready to not like her. Um, mm, I felt like okay. words, um, that this was kind of try taking a character that yes, maybe had always been underwritten. Uh, kind of a generic damsel in distress or, you know, good-looking redhead for, for Peter Parker to be interested in. Um, and they they tried to edge her up a little, and I think they they overshot the mark in the first movie. She was a little too edgy. The whole She was like Daria, right? Mm -hmm. Just, you know, you know, goth, dark. Yes, you know. a little too much. Yeah. Um, and this, she's a much more well-rounded character in this one. And this this one actually, I think it it worked. Now, I, I, and I feel like they they still really tread up to the line. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the idea that she's you know cynical and and unimpressed by anything, and always kind of you know uh, the whole line of you know let's say <laughs> this way this version of MJ in we almost certainly um, off screen <laughs> in the scenes we're not seeing her, she's almost certainly an SJW. <laughs> Right, the whole line where he says, "You look good tonight." Oh, so because I'm pretty, I have value. Uh -huh. And you know, and Peter stammers a bit, and then they say, "This was this is a scene in the trailer, so I'm not you know spoiling yeah. too much here." Um, and then she says, "No, I'm just messing with you." But like, yeah. <laughs> they they go right up to that line of you know, and I was, and I was thinking about how often the Marvel movies, you know, in an era where everything's politicized and everybody's upset, they really have tread very carefully. Mm -hmm. Where, you know, liberals come out of the movie and say, ah, oh, that was a great movie. And it totally, you know, reaffirmed all of our. Oh, uh, yeah. There's a lot of confirmation diversity. bias of people coming out of right? Avengers movies. And all the yeah. conservatives come out of it saying, oh, my God, I can't believe Thanos was an environmentalist. Yes. Like, there's <laughs> just, uh, yeah, I mean, I think everybody sees what they want to see, I suppose. Um, but I, I do think I hope that there are people that just enjoy them for what they are. Yeah. Um, I really hope that there are. I know I have become much more invested in them over the last couple years. Um, but that's because the movies have gotten better. Yeah. Um, they, they had a serious dip right around, like, Age of Ultron and Winter Soldier and some of those. But, like, the last two Avengers have been fantastic. You've got um, the Spider-Man that I thought was great and Black Panther, which was absolutely just stellar. And I enjoyed Captain Marvel. Mm -hmm. I say, looking back, Phase Two, uh, the the one that came out, but in between Avengers, up from between Avengers to Avengers Ultron, mm -hmm. um, really was kind of uh, the weakest one. Um, the ones that were most, you know, plagued by sequelitis. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, this was a, you know, by Phase Three they got you know, explore, you know Guardians of the Galaxy, 
Uh, they yes. were they started going to new directions, Doctor Strange, ones mm-hmm. that were really much more uh, experimental. They they kind of broke out of the formula. And they, you, people still might argue that there's a thematic or or beat by beat formula to these uh, ones. But you know, look, Mar- you know, Marvel figured out how to do wacky space comedy um, adventure with Guardians of the Galaxy, and then kind of this surreal, philosophical, magical one with Doctor Strange. Uh, the tone of uh, Black Panther, you know, Ant-Man being much more comedic. You know, they, they really, there's just a different tone to each one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know if you could do that, for example, with like Star Wars movies. Right. You know, they all have to have kind of the same tone. Yes. Yeah. So. That makes sense. And that could be why they have such a draw, because each one has a little bit different to it. There you go. Uh, yeah, because you want to see how, you know, you know there's going to be a hero, you know there's going to be a villain, you know the good guys are probably going to win on the end, although <laughs> some of these movies have been, <laughs> you never quite know. Um, so yeah, so I just we are now coming up at 104 on part Oh two wow, and that's in, not including our little introduction clip, so... Right. All right, so it is time for us to wrap up then. And I want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, Do subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Go and if it's iTunes, if it's SoundCloud, if it's any of your podcatchers, just go in and find the Jim and Mickey show and subscribe to it and you never miss one. Um, You can always find us on Facebook.com forward slash Jim and Mickey show. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Bias Girl. He is at Jim Garrity. And, of course, the show itself is at Jim and Mickey. So you can send us things there as well. We always love to hear from you. Um, We love your input on the shows and the topics that we're discussing, as well as things that you'd like to have us talk about. So thanks again uh, for listening, and we look forward to talking to you next time. I'm Mickey White. He's Jim Garrity, and you're listening to the one, the only, Jim and Mickey Show.